The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. And today I have a guest that is going to blow your mind. Uh, I know I've had a lot of great guests on the show. I continue to have great guests on the show. But this woman, her name is Mema Carmo. She is the founder and CEO of the Tiger Lily Foundation. You won't even believe some of the things that are going to come out of her mouth in terms of her journey, how she looks at life, how she helps, uh, the type of advocacy she delivers, and just what inspires her and how she's inspired her daughter to do the same, fighting against cancer and helping people that um, also are fighting against cancer focusing on health equity. So please do listen into this one. It's a little bit long, but I promise you it's every bit worth the conversation and uh, let's take it away. All right, Mema. Well, let's jump in and uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I know it seems like I probably would say that to all of my guests, but I've only just started to get to know you and you're a fascinating um, human being that's doing amazing things in the world. And everyone will find out more as we talk about that. But I do want to go all the way back to the beginning, because I really want to know the answer to this question. And I wasn't able to see it anywhere. And that is, when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? A missionary. I wanted so to you, be, I wanted to be able to like, just love people. Because I, you know, I would read a lot. And I would lay in bed, my dad would get like, Reader's Digest and Newsweek, those magazines, you know, back in Liberia. And I would just lay under his desk and read and people were just going through so much suffering. I would just, I, I, I'm very empathetic, empathic rather. So I would feel people's pain. And I grew up in a third world country where there was extreme poverty and loss and extreme wealth, literally like side by side. So I wanted to be a missionary or none, but just um, make people pray for them, love them and take care of them. And that's, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> my mom said, she said, I don't think that you would last in a, in a, you know, convent. <laughs> and, um, I don't think that I want, I want the world to know who you are. I want people to see you in the world, not just be hidden, you know, hidden in a cluster. And, um, and so she said, you know, just, just see what happens, you know? And I, I also had a dream when I was eight years old, that I was talking to God and, um, the dream gave me this, I woke up and I remember like in the dream, literally feeling like I was talking with God and I knew that whatever would happen in life, that I would serve people for a living. I would love people and help them in some way. I didn't know how, but I knew that would come to fruition. I just felt in my gut and my spirit and the rest is history, but I'll share that with you all who are listening soon. Well, I love that. And it's not surprising in the least bit. I do agree with your mother that it is good that you did not get uh, tucked into a, a cloister because you are a beautiful soul. And we will get to the part about the fact that you found a different way to put good into the world. And that is fast forwarding to, I think, probably a few years ago, because you're still very young. At age 32, your life took a dramatic turn when you were diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. 
talk a little bit about your pledge to God, speaking of God, after that diagnosis and you know where that started to take you, uh, which will be a little bit of a preview to the bulk of our conversation. Yeah. So, you know, so I want to give those who are listening a chance to know a bit, bit more about my background. I did, you know, get through three, had to escape three wars. Um, in the middle of that, was held at gunpoint multiple times, had to go into hiding, um, you know, my, and then being hit by lightning when I was 12. So I've escaped multiple near-death experiences. Um, one of the most profound ones is my mom, who taught me the importance of breast self-examinations at 13. And it wasn't a dramatic conversation. She just walked in the room. And in Liberia, it rains a lot. And so I love the rain. So one afternoon, it was raining. And she came in my room. And she said, you know, take off your shirt. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I have breasts. And I'm like, they're barely there. And you're embarrassing. The boys would tease me in class. You know how boys could be in high school and middle school. They come behind you and pull the bra strap because everybody can see them, right? Because they weren't on, you weren't wearing a bra last week. So, and you had the white kind, the, the big old granny kinds. And so... Um, she sat me down and said, I want you to know the importance of doing breast examinations. And I'm like, why? And she said, your body's going to change. And so if you don't do your breast exams now, as they change, you'll know what to expect. And so I just did them every month without thinking. And then fast forward, you know, later, you know, taking a shower and, um, in the bathroom, taking a shower, dancing, as I always do in the shower and singing. And I just felt this lump in my breast and I'm my singing. I stopped singing. I just was like, Oh my God, because I had asked her when she taught me the importance of doing the breast exams, why, what to look for. Like, how would I know? Like, I don't know what I'm looking for. And if you do your your exams every month as your body changes, you'll know what's supposed to be there and what's not supposed to be there. So you'll know. And I literally heard her words in my my head. You'll know. Um, My mom also being a nurse, i she was the Liberian Nurse Association's, um, the, the head of the association back home. So I sat with her while she was training and teaching and grading papers for many a nursing student. And I watched her meet with doctors and I walk, walk with her in, in the, in the um, hospital halls. And so I didn't fear, I didn't fear the healthcare system. And she said to me, your doctor should be one of your best friends because this person, whoever is taking care of your body needs to, to vouch for you and fight for you. And you have to be able to trust them and tell them anything. So I had an LBGYN who I had a great relationship with. So I went to her and she said, well, let's just get you a mammogram. At the time, mammograms were not recommended at that age. Um, We pushed for that. I got it. And she said, I want you to see a surgeon to be sure. And the surgeon said, well, the mammogram is clean. There's no evidence of cancer. And you have no history in your family. And you're so young that just, just go home, come back in six months to a year if you're really worried. But the recommended age, I suggest you come back is in your mid-40s. And, um, you know, I remember leaving that appointment. So I'm a glass half full kind of person. Like I will find a diamond in the dirt anywhere. I'll make my own freaking diamond. <laughs> I will dance at dusk. I will manifest a glass of water out of nowhere. Or just, I just look for the beautiful things and everything. So I was like, nothing, it can't be cancer. But my, but my gut said something's really wrong with you. So there's part of me that said, no, it's good. You've done all the right things, seen a doctor, gotten screened early. And then my gut said, something's there. You know that. So I kept pushing for a biopsy. And um, finally, I got one after pushing for six months. It turned out it was stage 2B, triple negative breast cancer, which is the most deadly cancer for a woman of color. And until last year, there was no targeted treatment for that kind of breast cancer. So imagine being 31 years old, now 32. I mean, a year, almost a year later, pushing for not a year, but like my age, I became 32 before diagnosis. And then 
hearing that I pushed for something, did all the right things, but I could die because one person determined that my life wasn't worth her pushing for more answers, right? I learned that women who are younger have dense breasts, especially black women have denser breasts. So that my physician, my OBGYN had advocated for me, but the doctor who dismissed me, you know, wasn't, my life wasn't, wasn't, you know, important to her. And, and people die for this very reason. So as I was going through the process, my life began to literally fall apart. Like, you know, I came as an immigrant with one suitcase at 15 years old and built my life. And then I'm watching everything just like disintegrate, like a broken glass, you know, and my daughter was three years old and I thought, oh my God, like I could die if it's not targeted by treatment. What's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to me? She'll never know me. And um, and so I went through a period of intense just shock, like utter, like, um, you know, like when you've been hit by a bomb, like if you people who've been in severe traumatic relationship or situations where you just feel like this big bomb erupted around you, you can't hear, you can't see, you can't process, you can't think. And I'm very analytical. I'm very, very grounded. But I was just, I was just hit by this bombshell. I, in my mind, there were soldiers attacking me within my body, and so, and that somebody had missed them, right? So, um, but nonetheless, I had to make these important choices that could save my life or end my life, right? And it, well, how how can you ask someone to make a decision about their life in less than a month? You know, like you're being told you're this age, and you you have to make these these important choices about you know, pick the oncologist, pick the surgeon, pick the radiologist. I don't know what those things are. I'm not, I'm, and I'm not health illiterate. I just don't know. I'm not born to understand cancer. I didn't go to school for cancer 101. And then right. all these scans and so forth. Anyway, long story short, I picked the doctor, started treatment. And then after just going through depression, I just realized like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to go out with a bang. I'm going to make sure that nobody else goes through what I went through, who's young, who has no, who has no, who gets dismissed by a doctor. This won't happen on my watch. I'm going to ask God to show me how to make a difference in a way that will be unforgettable and will outlast my lifetime. And, and here we are today. Well, that's an amazing story. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but you clearly made lemons out of, or lemonade out of lemons, as you said, you're inclined to do, right? Because you're such a glass half full kind of person. And I think just a little side note to that is I know with my wife and uh, our first daughter was an undiagnosed breach and why I'm not, it's not any remotely comparable to what you went through, but it is a, a cautionary tale of trust your gut, right? And I think in particular, in your case as a woman and a woman of color, where we know that the healthcare system has been stacked against you in many ways that it really is important to do that. So glad that you stuck to your guns. I would encourage everyone to really trust your gut and you know yourself as well as anybody does. Uh, and thank goodness you did find it at such an early age. And to your point, now we're here and this is what we really want to talk about, right? So stage two breast cancer, any kind of cancer is horrible, but it was the impetus for this beautiful thing that you put into the world called the Tiger Lily Foundation. So let's talk a little bit about what Tiger Lily Foundation is and what you all do. Yeah. So, so imagine you've been hit by a bomb. So if you close your eyes, anybody who's listening, close your eyes and imagine you're walking in this beautiful grain pasture and then your, your life is taking off and you're, you feel happy and content and you're living your best life. Then there's this bomb. And then you open your eyes and it's complete desolation. That's where I was. And I thought, you know, with all that I knew and I had resource wise to make these decisions, Someone determined something that could have killed me, right? 
So, and then they were like, you have cancer and you have to pick your doctors right now. You have to make these choices. And there was, there were so many things that were just utterly shocking to me and overwhelming. And at one point I was like, you know, going, getting my first chemotherapy, actually, I walk in the room and they, they sit me in this chair and I lay back and they're about to put the port in my chest to get the chemo. And it's like, you know, the red devil is what they called it at the time. And I look up and there's a shower head over me. I said, why is there a shower head over me? He said, in case the bag of the, the chemo spills, it could burn or hurt your skin. And so I'm like, okay, you're about to put this in my body right now. <laughs> it could burn somebody's skin. And it was just too much to absorb. And all I know, I had, all I know is how to make things better, more beautiful, and to, to transform my experiences. And so I thought, what would I want instead? What if this experience for me could be transformational? What if I could turn this challenge into a catalyst? And so I thought if I were to go back in time and redo this, if as a as being Mema or any young woman, um, I want the woman to know that she's beautiful, she's strong, she can't be transformed throughout this journey. It's not about death and dying or loss, it's about becoming a new person. So I one night I was like just I had lost my hair after my treatments, couple of treatments. I was like laying in the bathtub in a fetal position crying and my mom came and got me out of the bathtub and I cried. I was just so just done, sick, throwing up, diarrhea, nausea, all of that, and just curled into a ball. And I just said, God, if you're alive, I want you to talk to me tonight. Like, I'm not asking you. I'm freaking pissed at you if you exist. You need to tell me how to effing, how to fix this shit. Right? How do I, how do I, what do I do with this? It's a lot to deal with. And I don't know what to do, but we, I had that dream. This is happening to me now. Like if this isn't my thing to do and to, or to fix or to whatever, or just tell me what to do. And the next morning I got up and I felt like I had been like, if you ever have ever have had a deep spiritual experience, I felt like I had been like bathed by cool water. I felt strong. I felt like it's hard to explain. My body felt feverish, but my soul and spirit felt like it was on fire. And I was like, oh my God, he does exist. And I was like, what do I do now? And I just heard the words in my head, Tiger Lily. And the, be- the, the beauty in the word is that, so the, ti- the, the one I love the best is called the, um, the Stargazer Lily. Stargazers are really beautiful. They're like, they smell fragrantly. One of my favorites. Yeah. Oh my God. The Stargazers, like, I mean, it just like, you can't pass it by, right? So imagine a woman going through breast cancer treatment and the flower in the fall, the leaves will fall off. In the winter, it's dormant. But in the spring, that flower will blossom and bloom. And it's like this beautiful smelling flower that you can't ignore. And it's just gorgeous and full of life. And so I want a woman coming to our site to see themselves as a flower that you may be losing a petal here, like your hair, your breasts, your ovaries, you know, your fertility, whatever it is. And maybe even the ability to have children, right? I, I did all those things that I went through, but I, I bloomed. I blossomed to this person I didn't know I was during and after my treatment. And that's how the name came to be. Well, I love it. You know, I have to tell you, Mayma, like your plain spokenness is just so refreshing. You're not afraid to, like, you don't hide behind words or anything. So thank you for just <laughs> being so honest. And <laughs> not in the least bit. I, people need to hear this. This is, it's critically important. And I guess that's a good segue to the next one, because I think you've raised a mini me of you, right? So I was reading about the fact that you're teenage daughter has also jumped into the advocacy game as well. Um, how did she decide to join the fight and maybe talk a little bit about what she's doing uh, to, to fight against cancer? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, she's been my guiding, guiding force, to be honest. You know, um, 
her dad, when I got diagnosed, didn't want to deal with me having cancer. So that our relationship ended. So I ended up becoming a single parent while going through chemotherapy. Um, and I made some really tough choices, right? I started, I, I was working in government contracting. I talked to God. I said, if you, if you show me yourself, I'm going to leave whatever I'm doing, leave my, all my possessions, my money, whatever, whatever, my job to follow you and do this work. I did that. So God showed me himself. So I ended up leaving my job and I only had three months of savings <laughs> and um, I had just bought a house. I'm like, why am I doing this? But God said to do it. So I did it. And as I have been investing, we have just gotten our first house when I got sick. So my mom said, since you're sick, come live with me for a while. I'll take care of you, rent the house out. And then when you get better, if you still have it, you can move back in. So I ended up getting, you know, going back, going into a new home, still sick. And then I left my job after like a couple months. But I knew that there's no earthly thing that could equate to me. My daughter and serving God were the only things that mattered to me. Um, and the house could come and go. I would always be someplace warm and be fed. But the fire that God put in my belly and my heart and soul that was coming out of me could not be, could I couldn't stop it. I didn't have a choice. Um, and so, so Noelle was watching all of this. And so, you know, she would see me go to someone's house who was sick and sit with them. Um, some of the girls would, people would call me from all over the country that I didn't know. I would talk with them at morning time, noon time, night time. Um, we've had women that we were helping and I was paying for this myself, by the way. So we didn't have any money for a long time. I didn't have any money. There was no we, I was the we. So she helped me stuff bags. Um, I would take my bills and pay people's, people's bills. Um, we had our lights turned off sometimes because I thought if someone's dying of cancer and needs support, I, I'll be fine. We'll light a candle and we'll be fine. And we would buy pizza and eat at nighttime. But I just said those women are more important than our comfort right now. Um, and then I had friends that were people I met who I became to love, right? Who would um, were dying. So when they were dying, I would just pack up clothes for the kids and food. And I go to the house and I would just say, no, well, we're going to see my friend, the one you met two times before, whatever amount of times. And I'm going to sit with her and, and she's dying now. So she needs me more than ever. I'm not going to leave her alone at this time. So I would just go sit with her. And then she would play with the kids on the floor. And people would say to me, why are you taking your child to someone's deathbed? And I'm like, this is what compassion does, right? This person is dying. She's afraid. She's in pain. She's alone. And the only person that she knows to trust with that right now, this journey where she's going, besides God, is me. So I cannot leave her alone. And so she was with me a lot of people's deathbeds or in transition periods. Um, a lot of going to take food, baskets, bags. You know, our first event we had as a fundraiser, we only had one person show up for the fundraiser because we just didn't know what we we're doing. And I, there are times when I just wanted to give up. And my daughter would say, she said, Mommy, you make promise to God you can't give up. And she would just run me a bath. Did she run me a bath last week? <laughs> She's still doing that. And so, but fast forward to, to why she wanted to help. One day she reached out to me and we were in bed, actually. A friend reached out to me and she texted me. I was reading them all a bedtime story. She was probably about five or six. And um, I said, I just ended the call. I text my friend saying, I'll call you back later. And then Noel said, you should go talk to her because that's more important than my bedtime story. And she was six. And I knew that I had something special here, right? So it was like God was like phys physically embodying through her. So she comes to me after that and said, I want to help too. I want to have a fundraiser with my people who are going through breast cancer. And I think we should all wear pajamas and just dance and have a good time. I'm like, who's going to come to a fundraising event in pajamas? She goes, well, you had an idea and you talked to God and then I would look what happened. So what about my idea? And I was like, okay, touche. <laughs> so, so I went to some um, 
my cousins at the time, they own this company called Shea Moisture. Um, and they invested in her, in, in her business, in her, in her, so her fundraiser rather, Chemo Brain. And she, it was huge. It was epic. It was large. People just loved it. I mean, people came with their daughters because what it did was it was actually brought together generations, right? And people don't discuss generational health, right? Um, so you have women who are of all colors, especially black and brown women coming with their little grandbabies, their daughters, grandmothers, big grandmothers, fathers, discussing breast cancer, but dancing, wearing pajamas, um, doing hula hooping, telling family stories, um, shopping. And so that was her first foray and it kind of blew up a little bit. <laughs> she got onto all the news networks. Um, we had it a number of years and, um, with COVID, we haven't had it the past year and this year, but we want to relaunch the Pajama Glam Party because it became a really big deal. Um, even Joan London had her on her show and she has been traveling and doing, you know, media. But um, to me, it, it really spoke about, for me, it was humbling because I just thought I'm doing what I have to do for her future and for my promise to God. And people kept saying that it was the wrong thing to expose her to all this cancer stuff in her life. But what it taught her was compassion. So she's doing that now and she wants to go into psychiatry and mental health and philanthropy. So we're now kind of building her own, building her, um, looking at building her own charity, um, whatever her thing will be, right? But she wants to help kids who have parents who have cancer or who have unseen diseases or things that they, you know, chronic health illnesses. So really looking forward to seeing how she's going to blossom. Well, it sounds like she's already blossoming and a chip off the old shoulder. And wow, I just have to tell you, you're I knew you were amazing, but just talking to you, I'm that much more blown away by all that you've done and just the sacrifices you've made. I do want to talk a little bit about cancer, and you're right in the midst of sort of helping comfort people, but I'm sure with some of the recent developments that we're seeing in the breakthroughs in cancer research at the moment, I'd love to know, you know, what's got you excited right now? Sure. Well, Aaron, what I'm really looking forward to seeing more of is triple negative breast cancer treatments. Um, there's been, you know, two really big emerging, you know, treatments in the past year and a half to two years, which is before last year, we never didn't have any TMBC targeted treatment for black, for people in general. And as you know, black women die of triple negative breast cancer more than other people. And black women have a 40% higher death rate than their white counterparts. People who have triple negative breast cancer have the worst treatment outcomes. And I'm somebody who's an outlier. I'm still 15 years here alive because of just because I, I don't know, because God brought, kept me here for what I, for just maybe this purpose, right? But, you know, I didn't have targeted treatment. So I don't even know how I'm here today. But there are those who are patients who really need this drug who may not get it because of one decision. And so part of what I do is advocate for the underserved and the underdog. You know, I think that there are these systems that we have in place that people see as all knowing and all doing, and they're like God, but they're comprised of people. Right. And so as people like me who um, create powerful advocacy networks and powerful allies to to look at systems that aren't working for us or that don't listen to us, that don't include our voice and say, this is wrong and you will change that. And so I've done that my whole, I don't call it career because this is not, this is my life. It's not my career. It's what I love to do for a living. But I look at what's not working within legislation, within policy and healthcare, and I change it. I don't, I don't, I don't ask. I just change it. You can't wait to ask who's going to fix the problem for you. If you don't fix the problem, you're part of, you're part of that problem. So you're part of the solution or the problem. So I ask a lot of questions. I read a lot of data, a study. I ask my medical advisors 
and then I move. And so, you know, um, my excitement is to see that there are more people getting access to treatments to a triple negative breast cancer patients. But also I want to see on the other, not but, and also I want to see more, um, a more equal playing field for people who are of color and who are underserved. I think we talk a lot about health disparities. If I see another person talking about something and not doing about it, I'm gonna, I get mad. Because I think that if we invest money in more action and more targeted solutions versus, well, how are we going to fix that? Or let's do another research study or analysis of this, this situation. We've analyzed racism to death. And now it's time to just work to end it. And so that's what I do a lot of my work with right now is, you know, giving, being that voice for women who are younger and who are black and brown and really educating women of color through our angel advocacy program. We also launch our, through the angel advocacy program, we train women of color in cities that have the highest breast cancer death rates in breast cancer. And there are 20 of the cities. So we're launching a massive campaign to recruit and train and empower and engage these women so they then can work in their communities to, to create and pass it on, right? Like what I did, create change and transformation in healthcare. Um, we also launched our inclusion pledge um, almost two years ago now, which is really powerful. It literally was launched because, you know, I had two friends who were white who were like, you know, we get asked to do a lot of things that, that you never get asked to do. We have to just, we just get these opportunities that you have to fight for or don't even know about, you know, and, but you're asked to speak all the time and you're traveling and you're working full time and single parenting and doing all this, but we get these things so easily because we're women who are white, we have privilege. So we're going to turn down any opportunities that don't include a black woman's, you know, woman being involved in that opportunity, speaking engagement, piano, whatever. So we made that pledge public. And then we, I thought about it more and I said, it should be more than just not being a part of something. We should make everybody accountable who's touching a brown or black woman's life in terms of healthcare to making specific measurable change that will work to end barriers for her, for that woman in terms of her health and lifestyle. And literally within about three weeks, we had about 10,000 pledged commitments. <laughs> And I was like, holy guacamole, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> and we had these, in, in not just individuals, but companies coming to us. And, and we were calling the companies like, you know, Elili, Daiichi, Pfizer, Merck, Amgen, Seigen, Sanofi, and, you know, um, who else? You know, like BMS and these huge companies, Genentech, like coming to us and saying, we want to take this pledge. We want to support you. We want to know what you're doing. And there are more companies. Um and the inclusion pledge relief is really powerful. It's 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 really looking at yourself as an as an ally. And if you're an ally, you want to assess your privilege. You want to see where you have a blind spot. You want to know how you can be more anti-racist and and not just say you're not having a bias, but how do you make sure that you're anti? So you your suppliers, who you're hiring, what you're doing, how you're thinking, what you were taught to think as a child. I've had friends reach out to me from different companies and say I was taught to be to not have black friends. Even though I do like you, but there's things that I've thought about or I, I would never have had you home before. And it's like, really? They're like, well, my, my, grandma, my mom wouldn't my mom wouldn't understand. Or I have Black friends now, but I couldn't get in a pool with them when I was at this age. And so they were taught certain things that they're bringing into these systems. So systems don't mean shit to me because systems are comprised of people that can be changed if you want to change. Um, so excuse my French. But anyway, so the inclusion pledge has really worked to kind of be that framework for advocacy, industry, CROs, um, you know, we even got Oracle to sign a pledge, Oracle Health System signed a pledge recently. And so it's really becoming this magical, like a tiger lily, right? Within the, within the, so, so this is what I like to think about things. So 
here's racism causing all these problems. And I thought I could be anger, angry and beat at it, or I could blossom a beautiful flower in the middle of it and, and have that flower have a light as it opens up and people can become enlightened and transform. And then we could have that sh- clean out the darkness. So the pledge has been that light of like a torch, a flower coming out forth and saying, assess where we can apply more light in the space, in your work, your work, in your heart and transform these people that are leading these broken systems. And it's been really powerful. And um, thirdly, we, we launched our clinical trials um, program called Tiger Trials. And same thing as building trust, transparency and transformation in the clinical trial workspace. Um, and then we have these wraparound programs that we offer financial assistance, mental health support, care coaching. And we have tons and tons of partnerships that we're building to really help to end barriers for people who are black and brown in our lifetime. Well, it's amazing. And I'm glad that you brought up the inclusion pledge because you and I, oops, sorry, we did talk about this uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. And I am happy to tell you that I talked with some of our leaders and they said, this is amazing. Of course, we're going to be part of this. So I'm very excited to let everyone know that Real Chemistry, our company, is joining and taking the inclusion pledge. I've I've programmed content for uh, several years now, and it is something that my team will tell you. I always have been a huge pusher for diversity and inclusion in everything that we do. So now we'll take a more awesome. measurable, formal approach to it. But thank you for urging us to do this, Mayma. It's oh, an amazing I want to cry activity. now. <laughs> no, thank well, you so much. It I, it means a lot to me. I never really, never, never imagined that I would be able to meet people like yourself and make these incredible changes. Like I literally am so that little girl with a suitcase on the plane getting off in New York and like wanting to change the world. And just having Real Chemistry take the pledge and people like yourself that are doing such compassion-based work and we're driving that, it's like, what in the world, right? <laughs> so thank well, you so much. We just we try to follow the lead of amazing people like you who are literally putting good into the world. I do want to talk a little bit about how that gets out into the world, right? We've talked about what you're doing, where you came from, how you think, how you're helping patients and advocating for them. But you have actually been practical, too, in in terms of the fact that you have a number of platforms uh, that go beyond just the foundation. Uh, You have journalistic contributions. You're a featured speaker. You know, let's talk a little bit about what is most effective for you and maybe some places where you're. You you missed my TikToks, you know. Well, so I look at that as journalistic, (laughs) right? It's like you're. You, that is a new form of journalism is getting out in all of the right places. So maybe we can talk about TikTok if you want well, to. How is that going for you? You know, I just, I just always wanted to be real. So, you know, when I began to, to just ask how to serve, you know, ask God, I'm like, how do I even make a speech? How do I, I don't want to be yelling and screaming when you're all over the place. I don't want to be somebody who's forcing people to take, to eat what I wanted them to consume. I don't want to market to people. I want to be authentic. The most authentic thing for me is to be loving. And to see people and for, to have them feel me. So if you love people and you look at them and you feel them and they feel you back, then that's the deal, right? That's how it works. Um, so for me, I began sharing my story on Facebook, just sharing what I felt and thought. Um, I began to meet people that I love, these patients who were incredible women that would work, it just push so hard and they would spread the word. Um, I actually talked to an intuitive, intuitive person one time and they said, never say no. And I said, I can't never say no. And they said, just say yes. 
just think of it, just say yes, whatever you ask, just say yes. And so what you're saying now is something that is already done, but imagine someone being 31 years old, pushing for the screening, getting diagnosed 32 years old, having a full-time job, single parenting a child and building this huge thing. I, I saw this years ago, but I had to build it. No one believes in me really. And people thought we have this organ, that organ, they're doing this and that and the other. And it was self-funded for 13 years and get with individual people giving me money. Like it was not a thing where I, so I just began being honest. I, I put out with me, with my daughter, me was having dinners, you know, on the floor or going for drives in the car. I told her that I would take her to school every morning and we would have time together. So I would make videos of us dancing in the car and me harassing her. Um, I'd take her on Capitol Hill to meet Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Elijah Cummings and, you know, Amy Klobuchar. I just took her with me everywhere to events, to conf- cancer conferences. And she'd fall asleep on the floor. People would hold her and pass her around and like she would sleep in their arms. And she grew up in a world where I said, wherever I go, you go. I'm going to spend all my time with you. And... I didn't leave her at home with a sitter very often or with other people. I would take her with me wherever I went. Um, and that, I didn't know it was telling a story, but the story that I was telling was that, you know, you can commit, be a committed parent and commit to, to, to changing the world, right? You don't have to choose either or. Um, and, you know, we get home late, she'd be tired. And then, but she would go to school and have a project and tell her friends about what she, where she was and what she did. And they're like, really? You know? And so, I realized that that was my, that was my social, that was my marketing. I wasn't marketing on purpose though. I was just telling people that I promised God this thing and this is what I was going to do. And, and as I grew and she grew, people began to see the evolution of like just one person pushing and then there were volunteers and then there was some money here and there. And then my friend would die and I would share that. I'd be devastated, but I'd be with her holding her hand, you know, and I would be depressed and I would share that. And I would say, okay, I'm back, you know, after self-caring and, Okay, I'm seeing a therapist now, and you know what I'm saying. I just shared my my truth of who I was, um, and I don't think it's about even being humble. I just don't have a bum, a proud bum in my body to be like I'm somebody special. Like I just do what I do, and it's what I. That's how you serve, right? Like it's how people in the, serve in the Bible. You just serve, right? And even when I had big things happen, like I got to be on Oprah, I was like, "Why am I here?" <laughs> You know, like, and she's like, because, you know, and so I was gonna um, say, I know, I know why you were there because <laughs> why wouldn't you be there is the bigger question. I, but I, I just, I just shared that too. When I came back and I'm like back to work, people are like, you're back to work. Yeah. I got to pay my bills. Right. I got to help more people. Um, so I just began sharing this on Facebook and then sharing on Twitter. And then I have a, I'm very intuitive. So I can feel out who's on Twitter, who's on Instagram, who's on, uh, you know, Facebook. And so Facebook was more of my day to day, whatever. Instagram was pictures of things. Facebook was more video and things like that. Me and my daughter together. So I love to take her to school in the morning. And I told her on the first day of school, I'm going to be walking you to school every day till you graduate. I'm going to be walking you to school, dropping you <laughs> off. I have video of that. And literally I walked her to school and dropped her off, been with her and I picked her up. I went to ice cream social, I did all, did all those things. But I would share that with people. And people were like, how do you do it all? I'm like, same same hours in a day. It's just a matter of scheduling commitment. This is my child, right? And when I got diagnosed, I, I, well, I kind of have a big family because I have a huge family, brothers, four brothers. And the one brother, I hadn't seen him since before COVID. I had a nephew that was born during COVID. I saw for the first time yesterday. And so, oh, wow. but I wanted a huge family. And when I was diagnosed, they told me I couldn't have more kids. So I had to start treatment right away. No egg harvesting, no fertility treatments. So my daughter was like, I really wanted more for her, but I'm like, well, I'm all, you all I got, I'm all you got, and we're going to do this. So to, to, to your point, so I figure out which platform is the best one for me. And so, so I began realizing there are a lot of doctors on Twitter, like doctors and 
like medonks and, and, and policymakers. So I would target my certain things on Twitter. But also I realized people were very into like this, either you're a cancer patient victim or you can't be Diana badass or a unicorn. You can't be inspirational. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. That's not my problem to be suiting your needs. So I put out quotes on Twitter about inspirational things. And I would put out, I put dance videos on Facebook and people would message me and say, well, you're a leader. You can't just put that out there. I'm like, well, don't freaking unfollow me. I don't give, you know. <laughs> so I would say the F word too, but I don't want to say that on your podcast. But, um, and then um, I began, I found my daughter was on this thing called Musical.ly. That became TikTok, but I would get on there and make videos as well. And then I love the platform because TikTok lets you just kind of have fun. People are just serious and life is too freaking short. Um, I also like to write a lot. So I began to write via Huffington Post and other platforms. Oprah told me to write a book. So I did. And I wrote another book, another book, another book and poetry. So I just kind of, I feel like if, if we're meant to live, that means you have to fully express your life. You don't have to have one or two or three talents. You can have 20 talents, right? So I just kind of do whatever I want. And when I'm tired or bored, I try, I try the, the next thing. But I always express myself in different ways. So I do blogging. I have a podcast that I put on hold, but I'm going to restart. I've written five books. Um, I'm about to restart my pottery and gardening again. And But I think those things, when you document things, even my family's like, you're always pulling your camera out. But then I'm the one they call after 10 years and say, Remember cousin so-and-so's party? Mm-hmm. Can I get a picture of that? I'm like, mm-hmm. well, no, because you were laughing at me at that party. <laughs> but I want to document moments of life that we take for granted. So that's kind of how I grew my organization. Um, and when the media would call me, I would go. My daughter, had, we have had times where she literally would like throw up to, on the way to school. Let's say she's going to school. She has to go to school and they have to go to an interview in D.C. We're in the car. She wants McDonald's. Like, you don't like McDonald's. I want McDonald's. She started crying. I'm like, okay, let's get McDonald's. She gets it, throws it all over herself. I got to be in DC in 40, mi- 40 minutes in traffic. They're calling me, are you going to be on time? I have to call the school, tell her she, tell them she won't be in. I can't go home. I can't cancel the interview. So I just wipe her off, put her in the car. We get to the news station. And then they like get me all mic'd up. Then she's like sitting watching me and she starts crying. You're going to leave me alone? I'm like, you're right there. And they're like 10 and 9, 8. And they mic her up too. <laughs> she's on TV with me. So it just kind of like, it, and people knew that I, I put on Facebook that this, she just threw up in the car, but I had to show up here. And so I took off the day and we, I was home with her, but this is what life is about. And so I really just share that authentic life with people. And that's kind of how it grew. That's a great way to be out there in the world. And, uh, you know, kudos to your daughter for rolling with the punches <laughs> with you. I do have two final questions um, as we wrap up although I could keep talking to you all day because you're such a fascinating person. Uh, one, I've started to ask people during the pandemic, and that is, if you could have one wish, what would it be and why? Oh my God, I prepared for this, but um, I think I want a world where people are happy, people are a world where there's, where there's, we all have equal opportunity to be happy, to be happy, like healthy, and whole. Um, yeah, I want a world where people have, the, people have the chance to just, have equality in every way to joy, which into health and to be fully whole people. Well, that's simple, but I mean, what a perfect wish. And then I'll end with a little bit of a frivolous one that I've been asking for the last few years. And this is more meant to just get to know, you know, sort of how people tick, even though you've shared a lot about how you tick, which is great. Um, But it is the proverbial, you're on a deserted island. You can only take one album with you. Which album would you pick? 
Michael Jackson's, is it Wanna Be Certain Something, the Thriller album? Yeah, the Thriller album. That and the one before that. <laughs> and, and what is it about it that uh, just, you know, what? why would that be the choice that you'd have? I mean, obviously. It he, makes me feel alive. The music is amazing. Well, the yeah. music makes you feel alive. It was pure music. It was just like dance. It wasn't not this, you know, booty slapping, rump shaking, you know, smack that. <laughs> it was just like pure joy, you know, nobody's banging against the wall and legs in the air. I mean, this, this stuff you hear now, you're like, this is like really, really like bad rated R. <laughs> like, but it's just, it was pure dance, pure joy, pure. I recall myself being a child running around dancing those songs. And I remember when I first heard, heard Billie Jean, it was Motown 25, actually. They played Michael Jackson, came on Motown 25, and he danced for the first time, Billie Jean, at that award ceremony. My parents had me, we wouldn't, I wanted to sleep in their bedroom that night. And they said, well, we're watching this show. We had a VHS. We were watching this show. We, you have to be on the floor. It's past your bedtime and go to sleep. But I remember hearing that Michael Jackson, that beat, how Billie Jean starts off, that dun, dun, mm-hmm. and my head lifted up. And then my body got up and literally when this song ended, we were all like jumping up and down screaming. And back in those days, you had to rent the VHS. Remember, we had to go rent them and bring, you know, I do. I watched that VHS over and over and over again. And all those songs just were like so full of joy. And I, I, I feel like people forget to, and to, to have joy. And so I, what I told my daughter and she's had her own health issues and things to overcome, but she has grown through a lot, a lot through them. But I always, we always make, create pockets of joy. So whatever ways you can find joy in your life, you know, even though this world is, it is challenging. There's COVID, there's, there are all these things that happen to us, right? People dying, the kids who have health issues and older parents and so forth. Even our own fears about life and living and you have to create pockets of joy because if you don't do that, you wait to figure out when, you wait to when you have the perfect moment, right? When you have no, not, you have money and no bills, all the bills paid off and you will be perfectly healthy and that person will be, will love you back the way you love them. And there'll be no cancer in the world or um, we always think that we'll get to the next place and it'll be just perfect. And life's never just that, right? My friend, one of my friends calls, calls life a game of whack-a-mole. You hit one thing down and you have calm for a while, then the next one pops up. So, so having, making pockets of joy is really important. And that's what I do through, you know, my music in my house. I have a really huge playlist on my phone my friends are people that love me unconditionally i love them back um i in my home i have pockets of peace everywhere like i have each room has love in that room and um i want to be able to receive love but give it back and so it's all about it's all about that love even the dogs (laughs) they love me too right guys Well, on that note, I can't think of a better way to wrap up because, um, wow, like I'm smiling ear to ear and what an inspiration you are on so many different fronts. Um, So thank you, Mema. This is Aaron Strout, the host of the Real Chemistry podcast and the uh, CMO of Real Chemistry. And I've been speaking with Mema Carmo, who is the founder and CEO of Tiger Lily Foundation. What an amazing organization, what an amazing person, and what an amazing conversation we just had. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored. Thanks for being such an amazing person. I love your team. And this has just made my day. Thanks so much. Well, you are most welcome. Thank you. Okay. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.